I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. How's our sound? Good evening. Are we amplifying? Oh, shall I shout? Good evening. One, two, three. Hey, coming live. There's always that moment. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation, and this is the umpteenth in a series of uh, seminars about long-term thinking. Uh, I'm going to basically just outline the evening a little bit, and then uh, George Dyson is going to introduce his father, Freeman, and Freeman will speak for a bit on the subject of the difficulty of looking far ahead, and then invite his family and me. Uh, I get to be a cousin, I guess, for the evening. And uh, we'll talk for the rest of our time tonight. The, um, you'll be part of that. You'll notice if you have these cards, it has the real introduction um, to the three of them. It also has uh, room on the back to write questions at any time during the talk. Uh, these guys want to be, it's not talk and then Q&A, it's going to be talk and Q&A. So uh, be funneling questions out to the volunteers in yellow hats. They'll pass them up to Kevin Kelly and Alexander Rose, who will be uh, picking out the most uh, acerbic and poignant ones and passing them up to me, and I'll either read them uh, or hand them around to other family members. This is an historic occasion. Uh, this is the first time uh, these three Dysons have been on one stage together. And uh, not the last, I hope. I should say something about um, the next in the series, which is on November 14th, also here at Fort Mason, but over in a bigger venue, the, uh, the Cowell Theater, just uh, right over there, a few hundred yards. That's Clay Shirky talking. Uh, people who've heard Clay Shirky at tech conferences are amazed that a techie can uh, give such fabulous speeches. He is a great speaker, a great thinker, and the topic he's taking on is one which has been an intractable problem from six different directions, um, and that's making digital last longer than four or five minutes. Uh, basically, our whole civilization is going digital, and everything digital disappears every few years, which is probably not a good way to run a... That, you, know, you can't look far ahead if the far ahead isn't even there. So uh, his talk is making digital durable, what time does to categories. It turns out there's a whole nother problem with digital preservation having to do with um, metadata swamping data. Uh, the whole point that makes it difficult to use digital data over time is it's there, it's easy to store things, but you can't use it because everything's moved on. But also you can't use it, it turns out, because trying to tag it in a way that connects with everything else is a, uh, a problem which heads toward infinity. And Clay is uh, the best thinker around these days on, on what's called social software. Uh, another one on December 9th with Sam Harris, who wrote The End of Faith, talking about, um, well, it's called The View from the End of the World, and it's basically looking at what uh, end-time thinking does to uh, personal behavior and public policy, and on through, uh, through month after month. So let me introduce George Dyson, who's already spoken here before wonderfully on uh, basically the digital past and future. And uh, he's here to show us some pictures. 
It's, it's great to be back, and, and with Esther, we were actually scheduled to do this a year ago, and, and Esther's plane got canceled in Dallas, which allowed Tim O'Reilly to say that, that Esther was stuck in Texas like our government. And, and so my family, my parents owe Stuart a tremendous debt of gratitude because I was a teenager in New Jersey getting into all kinds of trouble. Things looked really bad. And then one day my older sister, not Esther, but older sister who lived in Menlo Park sent this envelope that had the first prototype version of the Whole Earth Catalog. And that's largely, it reviewed this book on kayaks, and that's really what inspired me to, to get out of the house and, and head west. So here we, we are, 1955, picture taken by my mother in Berkeley. So we're, we're back, you know, 50 years later. Verena, who's in the front, front row on, on that side. And Freeman, so I'm going to introduce Freeman. You, Esther and I need no introduction, but Freeman... Uh, so he, he started out very young and this is Freeman's mo- this is actually his most important scientific paper so it's, it's I'm, I'm going to make a serious point this is 1929 so Freeman is five and a half and the important thing about this is that it's wrong and, and that shows that he, he wasn't, like most five-year-olds would, copy, would go to the encyclopedia and copy the chapter on planets, but he was figuring it out for himself from the very beginning. And he's, he's done that with his whole life. He's always not taken the accepted wisdom, but, but questioned it. So, eight, 27th July, 1929, age five and a half. Then he started writing science fiction. So this is age, between age eight and nine, 1932, 33. So this is a science fiction story uh, about what could have been the end of the world. It's an asteroid. It's the, the asteroid Eros is going to hit the moon. And again, it's, it's all done with numbers. There's lots of calculations. That's the way Freeman always looked at things. And then later, this became real. He actually, you know, not many years later, in, in the sort of time scale we are now, he was at working for General Atomic on real spaceships and, and crazy schemes. Project Orion, which was the plan to... to uh, launch a ship bigger than this auditorium propelled with bombs. He became one of the leaders of the project, so he got to play the role that he'd written about in that book, things like this plan to go to the satellites of the outer planet. So this is the the predictions that that fell flat. We didn't do that. We got there with the the little Voyager probes, but not not with any people yet. Thinking big, this is Super Orion, uh, the launch mass of 8 million tons. So that's something like the size of San Francisco. <laughs> um, and here, looking even farther to very high-velocity ships that could cross the, the solar system in a month. And here, Freeman is changing from being a physicist to being an engineer. He, see, he's, he says 10,000 kilometers per second in principle. Actually, he said easily, but crossed it out. <laughs> so that's... That, that, that's that's the difference between physics and engineering, and, and 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 part of what Freeman has done so well is go is go back and forth across that boundary during his life. So here, 1958, they actually are testing the the prototype of this Orion ship. So he actually did some hands-on stuff. This is the launching of 
this is using a C4 high explosive. They were allowed, the physicists were allowed 400 pounds without adult supervision <laughs> that they got from the Navy. So those were different times. And now, we, now Freeman can't fly with a Swiss Army knife, but then they, they, they could. So we, we're not making progress. Also invented the th- something that did work. This is the Triga nuclear reactor, which is still the most successful nuclear reactor in, in circulation. There were 65 or 70 of them built. I think 60 are still operating. Um, it was profitable from the word go, still profitable today with Ted Taylor. And here, I think the only case you'll find, this is actually a study on weapons of mass destruction that quotes Wordsworth. <laughs> Very appropriate for long now. The unimaginable touch of time. This, this is actually a very interesting study on, on, on real, I mean, we're talking weapons of real mass destruction. And for, it's been involved in lots of long-term public policy, establishing the nuclear test ban, the hearings, which, again, well worth looking at from 1977, um, you know, almost 30 years ago, looking at the future of genetic engineering. And, and a lot of what's in those congressional hearings is still, uh, still completely applicable now looking at space colonization, comparing the pilgrims to the Mormons to the space colonists, and, and uh, that's very much the, the path we're on. Malthusian principles. <laughs> Note the, the uh, signature from one crackpot to another. <laughs> so. And serious, I mean, if you're really looking at long-term problems, the stability of matter is one of them. Is, is matter really stable? And you just, I'm just giving, you're just getting the executive summary here, which is it's an academic problem. You don't need to worry about that. But, <laughs> but Freeman questions all these things. Even the stability of matter, the other work he did was on the, whether, the, whether the constants of nature are really constant or not. How do we know? And this, one of his best papers I'm, I'm going to ask him about is this time without end, the, the question that if in a, you know, I think this was done for a different model of universe than we have today, but if the, the universe goes on forever, can mind and intelligence keep going? So this is sort of trying to answer the, the Ray Kurzweil question. If we, if we download, you know, Ray Kurzweil wants to be immortal, but can he really be immortal? Can you be immortal, you know, to the, to the final end of the universe? And, and the answer at that time was yes, and I think it might be different now. And then... But not to shy away from human problems, Freeman's many essays on, on, on human nature and, and his history in, in living in the real world of people and politics, which became his, still his, if you have to read one of his books, read this one, the, the autobiography he wrote 30 years ago, um, which was very popular. This is a <laughs> the advertising brochure for the Fairmont Hotel in Dallas, Texas. So that... <laughs> That, that shows you the extent to which, which Freeman has reached the, the public audience. Uh, but his most famous work of science is the search for artificial stellar sources of infrared radiation, which became the basis of the Dyson sphere, the idea that if we just keep growing, if the 1950s go on forever, uh, we will build a, a shell around the sun. And this, so this is our last clip here. Captain, I have identified the signal. 
It is from the USS Janolan, a Federation transport ship reported missing in this sector 75 years ago. Code, one alpha zero, ship in distress. Take us out of war, Benson, all stop. Aye, sir. Report. We have entered a massive gravitational field, Captain. There are no stars or other stellar bodies listed on our navigational charts. However, sensors indicate the presence of an extremely strong gravitational source in this vicinity. Can you localize the source of the gravitational field? Sensors? I'm having difficulty scanning the object. It appears to be approximately 200 million kilometers in diameter. That's nearly as large as the Earth orbit around the sun. Why didn't we detect this before now? The object's enormous mass is causing a great deal of gravimetric interference. That might have prevented our sensors from detecting it before we dropped out of warp. Mr. Data, could this be a Dyson sphere? The object of... Well, after that, everything will be an anticlimax. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> anyway, thank you, George. That was brilliant. Now, I'd like just to, to bring us down to reality a little bit. The, 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 the real problem that I see as a scientist is that science is organized on predictability. The whole point of science is, in fact, to find circumstances which are as unpredictable as possible and see what happens. That's our trade. So that's not altogether conducive to long-range predictions. We are probably the least qualified to make long-range predictions of anybody. Nevertheless, we do it. So let me just try one or two. It's, it's, uh, I'm not really thinking long-range these days. My, my, I'm, I'm 81 years old, so my horizons are getting a little bit constricted. One question I like to think about is domestication of biotechnology. That's to me very much in our future, but it's not the long-range future. This is only 50 or 100 years, long enough for me. I look at what happened to computers. When von Neumann built his first computer in Princeton, he had absolutely no idea that computers were ever going to be small and cheap. He thought they would always be big and huge and expensive. They would belong to big organizations. And that the legend is that the United States government asked John von Neumann, how many computers does the United States need? And he said, 818. That was the order of magnitude. Well, of course, it turned out totally different. He never imagined computers getting so small and cheap that ladies would use them for doing household accounts and kids would use them for doing homework and three-year-olds would use them as, as toys. 
Now, of course, our three-year-olds are as addicted to computers as we are, and that's our fate for the rest of the, the time as far as we can see ahead. Well, if you look at the way biotechnology is today, it's in the hands of large corporations and industries, and the public distrusts it for good reason in the hands of com companies like Monsanto, who is, is the sort of whipping boy for the environmentalists. Monsanto is, in fact, a very good company and doing good stuff. But nevertheless, they get blamed because they're big and because they do things like putting pesticides into crop plants, which you can easily translate into putting poisons into food. And that's what they do. And it's unfortunate. It was, also, it was unfortunate that von Neumann used his computer for designing hydrogen bombs which also gave his computers a bad reputation. But it can change, and I think it will change. And what I foresee is that biotech is going to go the same way that computers went. It'll become small and cheap and user-friendly. And there's a whole world out there of people who are wonderfully devoted gardeners and animal breeders, people who love snakes and love lizards and people who love roses and people who love orchids and, and they'll all have little kits that they can actually use at home for programming genomes and they can just, this will be a new art form as lively as cinema or painting or sculpture. The world will change. Biotech will become creative and people's feelings about it will change too. So anyway, I hope that'll happen. It's up to you to decide, it's a, or people younger than you. Anyway, I think at that point I have said enough. I'd like this meeting to be a conversation. I carefully didn't prepare a speech. So let's get to, get to work. We'll, we'll all sit up here and answer your questions. Thank you. Esther, it's your turn to speak. <laughs> Just say something or ask something. Well, I, I sit surrounded by you know, a brilliant scientist predicting the future, a brilliant historian understanding the past and what it means. I was trying to explain to Stuart what I do in this illustrious company, and it's, it's I don't want to predict the future, I want to affect it and make it happen. So my, my interest in the future is looking far enough ahead to find a point towards which one can practically work. How, how do you influence people now by understanding policy so that you can get them to do the right thing? And I think the best way to influence people is to get them to see things. And whether it's create market visibility or make them understand what might be worthy goals like domestication of biotechnology. But what, what happens when all those things, it's, it's one thing to create a piece of art that sort of stays where you put it. It's another to mess around with life. Oh yes. No, that's of course the, the whole point, that uh, we, 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 we are moving into the post-Darwinian era when 
genes are freely shared, just like software. It's, it's, it's essentially open source for genes in the future. They're not going to be species anymore. It is going to be a much more communal kind of evolution than we have had in the past. It will, it, it, it will be a very radical change. Most people don't like radical changes, but they happen anyway. And so will we have laws about what kinds of animals you can make and what should you, you can't? Or I mean, Obviously, it's going to be regulated just like everything else. Yes, indeed it will be. And, and uh, the problem only will be just to, to, to try to find some wisdom in making the rules. Do you have any initial ideas of what might be some useful rules? Sounds like I can. No, I no. can. <laughs> <laughs> well, how can you do it better? Seriously. The, no, I don't think the... I can do it better. But I mean, it's, there will have to be, of course, involvement of the public, involvement of the legal profession, involvement of the politicians. There has to be a, a decisions made by whole societies rather than just by individuals. Yeah, but you're now a member of some commission, and what are you going to suggest as a starting point for the kinds of rules that would be appropriate? I'm not a member of any commission. No, no, I'm... I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm putting you leave, on this commission. I leave that to you. And, and <laughs> I know... I have great respect for people on commissions, but it's, it, it's, it's a job, it's, it's out of my pay grade. And, and <laughs> no, well, I am on a committee of the National Academy of Sciences, which is supposed to examine this problem of how you deal with biotech, biotechnological hazards. And of course, we can all see that the future is dark with hazards, and in particular, bio, biological weapons, which have been around now for 50 or 60 years, so there's nothing terribly new in that, but still, with the help, help of the more modern biotechnology, you could imagine even nastier weapons than we have had in the past. And so this uh, academy committee has been debating what ha might be done. We haven't yet come to any conclusions, and I don't think anything we do will actually make much difference. I shouldn't say that in public. But <laughs> they'll, lower your pay, they'll lower your pay grade. <laughs> No, I, I mean, it is clear that it is a good idea for the international community to worry about what can be done with microbes. Microbes are much more dangerous than orchids and roses and even more dangerous than lizards and snakes. So it is microbes we really have to concern ourselves with. And you have certainly, the rules should be written so that kids can play around with dinosaurs if they feel like it, but they shouldn't play around with viruses. Well, Freeman, you were, in a way, in the thick of the Cold War and what led up to the Cold War and the, the nuclear confrontation, and those were pretty dark times. Um, do you think the hazard is greater or less now than we faced in, say, the 1950s? Certainly less. I mean. There was a real danger in the 1950s that we could have pretty much wiped ourselves out. I don't see that as a danger at the, at the present time. The dangers we have now are much more gradual and more long range. But certainly, we lived through some real 
desperately dangerous times in the 50s and 60s. So that gives me a lot of courage for the future. And, and we lived, in some pretty, lived through a lot of very bad times in the 30s and 40s, those of us who survived. Here comes the question. Uh, this is from Peter Schwartz. Want to raise your hand? Uh, what are your views? Uh, I think I'll ask this on all of you. What are your views on climate change and whether nuclear power should be a response to the threat of climate change? Starting with Freeman. Yeah, well, I'm in the, in, 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 in the category of skeptics about what's generally called global warming. I mean, the phrase climate change, of course, is perfectly acceptable and it has a real meaning and it, that's what's really happening. The climate is changing for all kinds of reasons, most of which we don't understand. But the phrase global warming is sort of misleading because it, 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 it sort of tries to reduce everything to a single number, which doesn't really, the average temperature of the, the land surface of the earth or whatever it may be, isn't really all that significant. What's, what's significant is how much it rains and how many hurricanes we have. And these are all difficult problems that we don't know the answers to. It, it's, it's clear to me that, that there is no immediate understanding of the problem that's good enough to take any substantial actions at the present time. So in that sense, I'm, I'm a skeptic. I believe that the it's an embarrassing situation to be in that I happen to agree with George Bush about this question, <laughs> even though I disagree with him about almost everything else. But in, in this case, I think it, it, inactivity is probably the most sensible course. So we simply don't know enough about climate change to try to, try to influence it one way or the other. That, that's my personal view. If you take a very long view of it, of course, we shall be changing the climate, and we ought to be careful to change it in a sensible way. And I think we shall learn how to do that, but it's not something we can legislate right now. Esther. Well, there, there are two, I agree with all that, there are two other things to add. One is the challenge of changing the climate is there's no way to make it better for everybody. And so inaction is much easier, or at least not willful acknowledged because you're always going to end up making somebody colder who's already cold or somebody even warmer that's already warm enough. The, the second thing to say is clearly I don't know about climate change. I do know about pollution. And you just need to fly into any urban area and look at the, the disgusting thing you're flying into as you land, that brown haze, to know that plain old pollution, forget about what it does to the climate, is, is genuinely a problem. And I'm, I'm a big fan of careful nuclear. What's more interesting to me is what's going to happen in, in all the developing markets where if we could only stop them and put in mass transit that really worked before they, they get this notion of everybody should have his own car. Do, doing it in the U.S. I think is way too late. But there, there are a lot of car sharing and ride-sharing schemes, I think, that would work if you introduce them in a world where people don't have cars and, oh, gee, I could have a quarter of a car is a very nice proposition. But if you start with a whole car, you're not going to give it up. 
I should point out that Esther doesn't drive. She lives in Manhattan. Yes. <laughs> so it's easy for me to say this. Fa famously the greenest uh, city in America and probably the world because of the density. And uh, it's, it, a large part of her social life comes from catching rides with people. <laughs> George, do you have an opinion on this one? Yeah, I'll add something there. I have a theory that I mean, when von Neumann wanted those first 18 computers, what he really wanted them for was, was weather control. He believed that that, that was the project. That, I mean, the, the bombs were the immediate need, but then they were going to be used for, for understanding and then controlling the weather. And everyone thinks that was as crazy as only needing 18 computers. And, and I think, in the end, we're going to get there, and we're not even going to know it. We're going to have real, serious climate control, and, and nobody will really notice that it happened. And the way that's going to happen is that, that, as you see what's happening with the price of oil, more and more we're going to go to wind, and we're going to go to solar, and other sources of environmental power. And if you're going to run the grid on wind power, you need to be very well connected to, to weather prediction, to know it's going to be windy in Tennessee, but it's going to be calm uh, in Ohio, so we're going to move the power this way and that way. It's going to be sunny here and sunny there. And how are we going to do that with very large, sophisticated computers? It's going to all be hooked up into a global climate model. And, and who will be the human being who actually knows when that system actually starts changing things rather than just taking advantage of what's there? And, and all the... All the individuals will be part of that grid. It won't just be the power companies, but people will have software that will enable them to sell and buy power in the market, usually not knowing much, but it will be done locally. George, I have a question for you. This is a biotech question. Um, Freeman saw us sort of talking about, well, let's just have trees that uh, you know, they collect all the solar energy and we'll uh, engineer them so there's a tap on the side that gasoline comes out of. <laughs> And you've been living in a tree on and off for a while, yes? And so my question is, um, presumably you do that because you like it aesthetically and for other reasons. Are you looking forward to buildings being made of living tissue? Biotech buildings that are alive and you know, respond and uh, metabolize and things like that? Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I mean, sort of the coral reef is the, a great example of that. It's, you know, it's a whole city that, that is in a functioning living organism. and The one thing that's missing in biology, there's a number of things that biology just hasn't done because biology moves incrementally. It can't make the leap. And One of those is trees in the ocean. We have kelp, but it's a, it, it doesn't have a vascular system. But it's incredibly possible to have vascular plants that really went from the, the deep sea floor where there's lots of nutrients to the surface where there's lots of sunlight but nothing. And it just, we haven't built trees. That's one of the things one of those kids with a kit could do. <laughs> but you, but it's a it's a big leap. You can't do it in, you know, in increments. It has to it has to sort of be done whole whole cloth. Yeah, it could make a big difference if we ha are able to b breed trees with silicon leaves. We know that silicon can convert sunlight to electricity with fifteen percent efficiency, and electricity can be converted into any sort of chemicals you want with pretty high efficiency. So that, in principle, if, if we could figure out how to, how to write the genes for a plant to, to make silicon leaves, it could be ten times as efficient as existing plants in turning sunlight into fuel. So it would mean that solar energy could be generated on one-tenth of the land that it takes at the moment. That would make a huge difference. It would mean, in fact, 
there would be easily enough land to supply the whole world with solar power and, and not need fossil fuels. That's a problem which I think will be solved. But of course, I, 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 I don't trust any of my own prognostications. I'd like to tell a little story about one of the great predictions that I made, which was a long time ago, when I had a conversation with Francis Crick. And that was in the year 1945, at the end of the World War II. And Francis Crick was then a physicist who had been working for the British Royal Navy for about six years and was totally depressed and discouraged. And he, he said, I'll never amount to anything as a scientist. He said, uh, I was trained as a physicist, but I've forgotten everything I ever learned. I've been working for the Navy for six years, and I don't know what I'm going to do after the war. It's not going to, I, I'm, I'm just too old to do anything useful. And uh, so I tried to encourage him a bit. Then about a year later, I, I happened to meet him again, and he said, oh, I decided what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a fresh start. I'm going to do biology. And I said, but that's all wrong. You, you, you won't be able to do anything. <laughs> said, it's true that in the long run, biology is going to be the most interesting science, but that'll be too late for you. <laughs> By the time biology really comes of age, you'll be too old. So anyway, of course, it only took him seven years to prove me wrong. Well, Freeman, that's, you've been paying attention for about 78 years now to uh, the pace of change. And what you just described is the kind of thing that Ray Kurzweil was talking to this audience about a week and a half ago, that things are coming faster and faster. Now, partly as we get older, things come faster anyway, because <laughs> that's just the nature of attention as, as uh, you age. But do you get a sense that things are coming faster and faster, and so when you're, you're making these uh, remarks about uh, silicon trees and so on, do you expect to see that in uh, the next decade or the next century? So I think it, 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 the most difficult thing is to, 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 to know the time scale in which things happen. I mean, because von Neumann thought he could control the weather in 10 years. And of course, it took a lot longer than that. If it's ever going to happen at all, it will be a more like 100 years. So you just never know how quick, uh, how, how difficult or how easy things are going to be. In the case of the, uh, 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 this, in this case, I would say 50 would be a reasonable guess, but I could be wrong by a factor of five either way. You titled this The Difficulty of Looking Far Ahead. Um, say a little more about far ahead. I'd like to hear from the three of you, because Esther, you talked about the future that, that, you know, that draws us on. I'm curious if that's a five-year future, a hundred-year future. But Freeman, starting with you, how, how far is far ahead? Yeah, well, this, of course, you can take your choice. I mean, I've been thinking about the very, very remote future in that paper that George Show, show you the, showed you the title page, the world with the, the life, what was it called, life without end or something, or time without end. Uh, I was taking a very abstract view of life, just life meaning the processing of information 
that could that be self-sustaining? Could there be sources of fresh experience and fresh knowledge in a universe that continues to get colder and colder? And I answered the question with a tentative yes. And that's, a, 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 in a way, a purely academic question. And you can take your choice what you, what, what you turn your attention to. If you look at a, at a billion-year time scale, then that's further away from us than we are from bacteria. So that any, any, anything you imagine about the future evolution of life then will far, fall very far short of what happens. We can't hope to imagine what creatures a billion years from now will be thinking about. And even then if you talk about a thousand years from now, then we're still talking about something close to human, human, human beings. But the conditions of society are likely to be totally different. So it's all a question you can, t you can take your choice. I don't see myself that things are growing faster in the way that Kurzweil imagines. I think that that's an illusion. But uh, there, I mean, it's... It, 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 it's uh, I think of the time scale in which my mother lived. I mean, that's the sort of the time scale I think about. My mother was born in 1880 and died in 1975, so she lived 95 years. I think she saw more drastic changes in the conditions of life than I've seen in my life, which is from, from 1920 until today. It's, it's a, I mean, she, she, the changes she saw from the ages, from the time when you traveled around in a pony cart to the time when you flew across the Atlantic in jet planes, both of which she did, I think was a more drastic change than we have seen from the age of when I grew up, when we already had airplanes, although they weren't yet jets, to what we have today. The changes have been very large in both times, but I think they were faster at the end of the 19th century than they are at the end of the 20th. Are we tapering off then? Is this a sort of a leveling? Are the population is going to level off in the next couple of decades? Is the pace of change also leveling off, do you think? Well, it looks as though it's leveling off. It's re remarkable to what an extent the birth, birth rates in most parts of the world are, 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 are falling, falling off. Somehow or other, the women are being more sensible and also acquiring more political clout. And both of those reasons, of course, produce falling birth rates. I was in Italy last year, and they were joking then that if you come back in 100 years, there'll be nobody here except Albanians. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a very, a very it, 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 it's a very profound historical truth that somehow or other this population bomb has somehow or other fizzled. Esther, I want just to pursue this a little further, what's your scale of future that you find useful to think about? Well, first, I actually think there has been a huge change between when I was a kid in, in people's assumptions about communication. In, when I was growing up, most things you couldn't know. You could, you could find them out remotely over time. When I started working at Forbes magazine, when I wanted to find stuff out, I would go to the library or I could 
find a phone directory, call a company, and two or three days later in the mail something would arrive. We didn't even have fax at that point. Now any seven-year-old knows that he can send an email to somebody in Japan. It, it, there's the, the amount of information that's available in real time everywhere to me is, is the biggest change that's happened. And children's assumptions, in, in your grandmother's day, children, children of well-to-do families were kept in a completely separate world. Then it's in your my, grandmother, not mine. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, whatever, yes. <laughs> when, when I was growing up, if, if you had been careless enough to let me watch TV, I, I could have seen the adult world or something that passed for it, but I still was treated as a child. Now children are, are completely part of the adult's world. You have 14-year-olds running little businesses and, and going online. And those changes, which are partly social to me, are huge. The change that I see coming has something to do with genetic engineering and, and if you like, the perfectibility of humans. And I use that word perfectibility advisedly. But if you spend time in Eastern Europe and you look at the people, they have warts, they, they have wrinkles, they're and you come to the U.S., people seem plastic already. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's going to be the biggest change. I don't know what it means. But in, in the past, you, you kind of, you got your body, you got your brain, and that's what you were stuck with. But in the future, if you, if you get old or you get sick or you get stupid or ugly, it's going to be considered your responsibility. And, you know, he's so careless. He didn't care to fix himself. It's, I think it's going to be a very interesting and, and very socially jarring change. Absolutely. I mean, that, I, I would certainly agree with that, but it hasn't happened yet. No, but uh, I predict it. <laughs> George, do you have a view on this? Uh, no, I'll let you get to another. Uh, this one's from Tim Bishop. Wave a hand, or there he is, right there. His question is, uh, this is going to be for all of you. In your own way, each of you are utopians. What have you learned from your collisions with the law of unintended consequences? <laughs> Whoever has uh, the first one that leaps horribly to mind can uh, speak up. Unintended consequences. Well, you know, I'm a historian, so I'm always looking at the replaying the past. Why did things turn out the way they did? Why didn't they, they turn out differently? I mean, in, in, in my own life, I, mean, you know, I never expected to predict anything, so, it was all, so I didn't really have intended consequences. But... but <laughs> But the, the, I mean, the law of unintended was. I think you see it most strongly in, I mean, in biology and technology. That just things, things get developed for one reason and then they are co-opted for for something else. I mean, obvious cases with computing or or you know what happened in biology with crystallography being, being done for one reason and then suddenly it changes the, you know, the physicist comes in and becomes a biologist and the, and the whole world changes. So. 
Yeah, I think one of the striking examples, of course, is the, the, the spread of new diseases, these emerging viruses, which essentially is a consequence of the easy communications. The fact that people are traveling all over the world into remote places is, is largely the cause of all the new diseases that are springing up. That, that's a familiar subject. I don't have anything original to say about it. It's certainly, it's, it, it's, it's likely to happen uh, that this free communication of information also has tremendous unintended consequences, most of which I think have been good. You might say that the disintegration of the Soviet Union was one of the unintended consequences of personal computers. The the other unintended, it's not exactly an unintended consequence, but there's a certain carelessness that you can see in Iraq, which failed to learn from Afghanistan, which failed to learn from the Soviet Union, which is if you, if you get rid of the bad guys at the top, you don't really fix the problem. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a failure of the leadership, whichever leadership in whichever place, and it happens again and again, to misunderstand the, how deep-rooted most situations or conditions are. So it's an under, you get rid of a disease with some drug, and then you discover you've created new drug-resistant varieties. You get rid of a dictator, and you find out that there's eight people worse ready to take his place. So it, it, yet at the same time, it doesn't mean don't do anything. There's, there's a real shortage of people who are willing to make mistakes in order to do something that's clearly good, even though that it will have bad consequences. You see this now in the drug industry, where in order to stop 10 people having heart attacks, you deny hundreds of people pain relief, or uh, they don't die, die of cancer. 300 people may die of cancer so that two people don't die of heart attacks because the two heart attacks were caused by a drug, whereas the cancer, in quotes, was natural. These, these are the kinds of things where you need people willing to make mistakes and, and to cause harm in order to cause greater good, just as you also need people to understand getting rid of a dictator doesn't do the job. I think we were... This your answers beg the question in an interesting way, Jim Bishop. Yes. I think these are not utopians. And in fact, I would suggest there's a, a spectrum between faith-based uh, actions and thinking over which unintended consequences of the norm uh, over to evidence-based, which these guys live in in their various forms, focusing on business, focusing on, on uh, engineering and research, focusing on science. And in the middle is notion-based. And notion-based is the kind of thing that led us down a blind alley in, in Iraq, I think. There was a, a notion that certain things would occur that you just described. It's not really faith. It's just um, when you really are, hold the notion strongly, uh, you, you develop a very selective blindness about data that doesn't agree with that notion. And the idea of being evidence-based is you develop a, a selective uh, interest in data that doesn't fit with your notion. And that's how evidence-based uh, uh, behavior works, and that's where I think these guys are. Uh, in, in that light, uh, Jill Tarter has a question, which is right over here. 
Um, SETI's a wonderful uh, evidence-free <laughs> science so far, isn't it? Suppose we can assure ourselves that there aren't any indigenous Martians or Europans or asteroid dwellers. What are the pros and cons of taking terrestrial life to solar system bodies beyond Earth? Have you seen the pictures of Hyperion? They're absolutely incredible. It, it's hard to believe there isn't somebody there. <laughs> it's full of caverns, it looks like. It's very light, and it's got all these holes in it. Yes. No, it, 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 it's clearly biological. I mean, the, 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 <laughs> Right, a this vascular plant. <laughs> this is one, one, of, one of the smaller, not, but not very small, moons of Saturn that turns out to, 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 to look like a sponge, and it's quite, quite absolutely weird. Anyhow, that wasn't answering the question. <laughs> Do you think we should be uh, heading out to... Uh, well, it sounds, Jelly, your question sort of suggests that if there are creatures out there, we should not head out. Well, that's another ethical <laughs> But uh, so far, you haven't found creatures, so so far, that's not an issue, and we can head out, and you favor it, I take it. We're going to make a Dyson sphere around our solar system. Yeah, no, I think it's very important. If we want to monkey around with human nature which is what Ray Kurzweil is talking about, where mm. we, we're making radically new kinds of people who are supposed to be our descendants, then we really will need more space. This planet is too small for experiments of that kind. I mean, we have a bad enough problem just with pe the colors of people's skins. If we have people of radically different mental capacities, it's really going to be very, very hard to manage in this little planet. So I think that, that that's, to me, the most urgent reason for wanting to go somewhere else to do such experiments, which I think we should make, definitely make the Earth a, 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 a retirement home for old-fashioned people. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to monkey around with human nature, go somewhere else. You guys have views on this? Um, I just say very simply, more space. Uh, we like to explore, so let's go. But it ought to be cheap so that it's available to everybody. <laughs> yeah, I, all I'd say is that you know it's not clear we'll recognize life when we see it. You know, that's the important thing is to stay very open-minded about what, what life is and that we don't just step on it or, or it, Fred Hoyle's black cloud or something surrounds us. We don't, we don't realize it when the time comes, and that could be any moment right now. It's already happened. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, the last time George was here, he gave, uh, to me, the most definitive futurist statement I've heard is he gave this wonderful history, and he's an historian, of uh, how computer technology uh, came along and changed the world and the many amazing uh, quirks that happened along the way. And someone asked a question toward the end, well, what about the future of computer technology? And he kind of paused a long time and said, future? Well, just wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, here's kind of a mathematical question uh, from, looks like Dave Yaganuma, is that right? Close. 
Uh, Stephen Wolfram and Rudy Rucker suggest that the universe is a set of gnarly computations being carried out, and often these computations are irreducible. There's no shortcuts. Could this be the main reason it is difficult to look far ahead? Well, to some extent that is true, but I think there's a lot more to the universe than that. So, I mean, that's only one among many reasons. Do you think the universe, there's, you know, a number of theories going around now that, you know, Fredkin and so on, the universe is sort of basically information. Uh, Do you hold to that? Well, I I, I think this is sort of a, a, a... a metaphorical statement rather than a scientific statement. So it's not true or false, it's just a question of how you look at it. Uh, Here's a question from Dervala Hanley, out there. What won't change in your your preferred far-ahead time frame? That's a good one for George. He's a conservative (laughs) in this group. I think human nature won't change for a very long time. I mean, it, it, you know, eventually will change, but it's been remarkably static. And, and the example, you know, it, like our, you know, everybody has cell phones, but we all evolved living in a small family group in a village. We're talking to 12 people. We knew 30 people for even. That's exactly what you all have on your cell phones. There's 12 people you will answer for, and there's maybe 30 people in your address book that you've ever called. And we just revert to these. We use the new technology to revert to our old selves. And I think that's a very powerful force, and, and it, will, it will keep us, um, I think it will keep going for a long time, on, on our horizon a long time. Yes, sir, what won't change? Well, I, w- I would have said human nature and... Pardon? <laughs> I missed it, but... I, I would have said human nature, but it's, it's kind of interesting. If Human nature is, I believe, fundamentally the result of evolution. And if we... Which I believe is how we got here, just to make that clear. <laughs> What's amazing is but, that that's an applause line. Yes. <laughs> but if we, and human nature is things like greed and hunger and desire for acclaim and some, some desire for closeness and intimacy and affiliation and jealousy and all these kinds of things that make people strive to do stuff. And if we do something closer to intelligent design to make everybody nicer and more placid and intelligent. I, human nature is going to change, and I'm, I think that's the biggest and the scariest experiment. Well, it's all right if they go away and do it somewhere else. <laughs> like Australia, yeah. <laughs> Well, that worked for a hundred years, but it wasn't far enough. <laughs> but it's interesting to speculate how, if you if you created some kind of new race and you stuck them all on Mars, what would happen if you came back a hundred years later? And the, the the essence of all these interactions is that you can't. The guys in Australia they were stuck with one another. And the people on Mars, whatever they might be, will be stuck with one another. It will be interesting to see how that 
I'm not sure it's an experiment we ought to undertake, but it would be interesting to see how that came out. No, I'd like to do it uh, on, on, with, with, with a much larger number of different places, which we have in the solar system, all these nice little comets and asteroids and such places. You could have separate societies on, uh, 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 on millions of places trying out all these experiments, and oh, you just have to have some sort of rules that they weren't allowed to interfere with each other beyond just a, a, a friendly social communication. And then the meanest ones would win. <laughs> there would have to be some sort of regulation, that's clear. But uh... Here's a frustrated question from Brad Newberg, right over here. Uh, how the heck can we get off the planet? What lessons have we learned from the failure of the space age? And by the way, Orion never got very far off the ground. Now, there's big talk about whoopty doo, we're going to go back to the moon. What is it, 40 years later? No, well, this, of course, was almost entirely a problem of politics that, uh, mm -hmm. that the. Uh, the political force driving the moon operations in the 1960s was entirely just, it was an international sporting event showing we could beat the Russians at some technological feat that the public could admire. And that's what it is today, only the trouble is we don't have a competitor. So I hope that the Chinese will play up and that we'll get going again. Um, I think maybe the way to do it is in fact the privatization and commercialization of space travel. And as I said earlier, I actually try and make certain things happen. What happened when you took the internet from DARPA and turned it into a commercial operation unleashed huge amounts of energy, money, funding, creativity, bogus experiments, and in the end, success. And I think the same thing would happen with space travel. There's a company I'm actually an investor in called Space Adventures, which they, they were the guys who got Dennis Tito and Mark Shuttleworth up into space. And 20 million for them, 1 million in a few years perhaps. And it, space travel I think is going to be vulgar and commercial and tacky, and full of cotton candy. They're going to put logos on the rockets. and. That's how we're going to get there. We're going to excite people's imaginations, not just by beating the Russians, but by you could be there too. No, that's absolutely right. But it will take a little longer, I think, than most of these enthusiasts believe. But that's all to the good. That's, that's, uh, they, they have to believe or else they wouldn't do it. One of the things about families is um, there's a lot of conversation that goes on. And a lot of it's just sort of dealing with the various who's on first stuff within the family and some of it's kind of catching up and so on. But you guys have probably exchanged opinions on a number of things over the years. Are there any that you find you disagree on in an interesting way? I'm trying to get a little fight going here. <laughs> Kevin Kelly urged me to do that. Well, I... I with deference to Peter Schwartz, I... I I just, 
I, I've not been won over for nuclear power yet. I'm still dead, totally against it. And not, not in the best of all possible worlds, but in the real world we live in with the, the systems we have in place, I think it's, so, and, and so I think we disagree on that. On what? Sorry. On nuclear power as a commercial. Is solution. this the first time you guys have talked about it, or do you no, discuss it in family? We've, we've, we've talked around it, and, and, and that's, but that, but there's reasons for that. I mean, we, so, but that's that's one place. That's one of many technologies. Are you sanguine about the other technologies that Freeman is uh, comfortable with? That's that's one of the few. Most of the others I endorse, but that's but that's going to be one of your sessions in what, three, a few sessions away, you're going to have a whole evening of that. So. Esther, what have you noticed that you vary with either your brother or your father on? Well, I, I'm actually going to, I think what you really want is touching family anecdotes. And, <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to tell one. The the three of us have never been up here up on any stage together, but Freeman and I were a few years ago at, I think we were getting honorary degrees at Clarkson University or something. Oh, right. And I got up there and I gave sort of the typical internet erosion of power, empowerment of the individual speech and whatever. <laughs> the, Freeman got up there and did something very courageous that gave even me the creeps, which was somebody, you'll remember this much better, and you may, you may want to just take this away, but some, somebody you knew slightly had been accused of pedophilia, and pedophilia is, is worse than murder. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's the one sin that even to be accused of means you cannot be defended, and Freeman defended this guy, not for pedophilia, but for don't accuse this guy with that. And it, it got a kind of, I think, shocked and sort of, well, I guess he's Freeman Dyson, so we should respect what he said. <laughs> he had the courage to do this, and it was impressive. Maybe yeah, this was Carlton Gajdusek, who is one of my heroes. He's a, he's a, he's a, a, a wonderful anthropologist who has won a Nobel Prize for finding the cause of this neurological disease called Kuru, which was decimating populations in the Solomon Islands. And then he adopted 60 of these kids who had been orphaned by the disease, brought them to the United States, paid for their upkeep, and educated them. And when, I mean, it's a, it's a long and complicated story. He, he has uh, essentially had his name blackened by two of the kids who were... I, th I think they've made... A, I mean, most of his kids, in fact, turned out very well and made successes of their lives. Two of them did not, and so they were... <coughs> just, just, just depressed and disgruntled, and they blamed Carlton for having them having ruined their lives. And anyway, so they got into the hands of some clever lawyers and accused Carlton of child abuse. And as Esther said, that was sort of a, 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 a label. It was like being called a communist in the 1950s. 
you, if you really want to damage somebody, you call them a, a, a child abuser. And, and, and as Esty said, there's really no defense. So Carlton, in fact, as a result of this, is, he, he was sent to jail for a year. And I went to, to welcome him when he came out of jail, together with four or five of his kids who came along too. And we had a wonderful party to celebrate. And then he went and, and uh, since then he's been living in Europe and a, a lot of the time in China. He's welcome everywhere in the world except in the United States. So that's the story. I don't claim any particular credit for having defended him. I think it was just common sense. Uh, here's a uh, question from George Canciani, I believe it is. Um, Will we be able to increase animal species intelligence toward human intelligence through biotech and genetic engineering? And do we want to? That's the implied rest of the question, yes. We love our pets, and we love it when they love us back. And we probably, uh, you know, we all talk to our pets. Uh, what if they started uh, replying? No, there's a wonderful science fiction story called Sirius about this, written over seventy, I guess, seventy years ago, before genetic engineering was invented. You could still imagine things of this of this kind, and it's a very deep study of what happens when a dog is produced with a human intelligence. He cannot find a place for himself either in the world of dogs or in the world of humans. I think that should definitely be a no-no. Yeah, it's a tragedy, the story. You're in agreement, Esther? No, no intelligence for animals? Well, it reminds me, I, I was once in Japan long, long ago. As, as a reporter for Forbes, I had a respectable role to play, and I was having dinner with this guy from Hitachi who ran the hardware division or something, and I was asking him all these questions about Hitachi and its strategy and software and so forth, and he, he wasn't really answering. Then finally he just stopped talking and giggled and looked at me and said, so funny to hear women ask these questions. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like a talking cat. It was. <laughs> no, that was exactly what Beata Surota said. You know, she was the lady who wrote the Japanese Constitution when she was, I think, 22 years old. She went to Japan with MacArthur's staff, and she was the only person on MacArthur's staff who was really bilingual and bicultural. She had grown up in Japan, and, and so she really knew the culture. So she actually got to write the Japanese constitution, and she got to negotiate it then with the Japanese politicians, because they had to accept it before it became the law of the land. And she said she has a huge advantage when she was negotiating with these Japanese politicians because they'd never had to deal with a young woman of 22. It was something to totally out of their experience. 
that she always got what she wanted. <laughs> so the first intelligent animals will have these kinds of uh, advantages, I can see that. And, and, and problems, because nobody will take them seriously. In, this, in her case, <laughs> somehow, somehow she managed to, to turn that to her advantage. Well, Freeman, you've mentioned science fiction a couple times. And By the uh, way, the author of that story is Olaf Stapleton. I should mention that. Uh, yeah, say more about Olaf Stapleton. I mean, there's the, uh, I think you, just, you did an introduction for his book or something, the uh, Star Maker, I guess it was. Uh, and you've, you've written science fiction, as we saw in the introduction. Uh, evidently, you've read a lot of science fiction. What's the role of science fiction in all this? Oh, it's huge. I mean, it's certainly been the inspiration of almost all the sort of new technology that we have seen. And it's, it's, uh, it, it, it also is important also in science, too. Most of the sort of radical, out-of-the-box ideas come, come first out of science fiction. Do you read contemporary science fiction or pretty Not much? Not enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> George, do you read science fiction? I also not enough. I mean, I, I used to, I, of course, read all of Stapledon and was... All of which? All, everything Olaf Stapledon wrote. I mean, mm -hmm. all his, I collected all his... He, he actually wrote quite a bit of nonfiction, too. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, he had an incredible view of, of the future and how things would unfold and just, just hit it dead on in, in a lot of ways and wrong in others. But, but uh, he... You know his his ultimate bad case scenario for the for us was something that's really happening now, which was he sort of envisioned microprocessors and that they but they came from Mars. But it doesn't matter whether they came from Mars or from Motorola. I mean, it's the same. It's the same thing. And, and, and they infiltrated everything. And that's really what's happening. Our world is being infiltrated by the, the world of these, you know, they're just scaling out into everything. And, and it, it didn't turn out good for, the, for us. I mean, it's worth reading those, those books. <laughs> and Last and First Men is where that is. Yes. Esther, do you read fiction? Not enough. <laughs> the, the, the one thing I actually would suggest is getting Neil Stevenson down here. That was amazing. He, Nobody gets Neil Stevenson to talk except yeah. you. Because uh, one point he made was that, at least for him, science fiction was turning into historical fiction. And he wasn't quite sure why, but I think if you pressed him, you'd get a very interesting talk. Yeah, he's one you have to interview like you did at one of your conferences. I got him through George. <laughs> What are you reading now, George? I'm going to go down the line. I want to know. If... What am I reading? I, I, I essentially read non nonfiction. I'm actually reading Ray Kurzweil's book right now. Because <laughs> it sort of landed on my desk with a big thud, and, and, and I opened it. And, uh, you know, so essentially I read primary source documents. And, and I read the letters, papers left behind by you know, the forgotten stuff and, and dredge it out. Say a little bit about the relation of primary source documents to the story that gradually becomes told, because you're unique in that you really go back and sort of undo the, the common story by looking at the 
at the sources. What's that process about? It's, it's about detail, and it's about remem remembering things is very different from what really, really happened. So when you, the, the letters and the documents keep you, you know, keep sort of history honest, and, and it's, uh, it's fascinating. I've been, uh, Freeman let me copy all his letters from 19, from when he went away to school until 1960, and those are, again, I was utterly fascinated. I mean, the record of, of, of those times. Suppose all of the email that all of us are writing, instead of disappearing like everything digital was going to do, actually uh, is is kept, is it's keepable. That, Brewster's right here. He's keeping Brewster's it all. right here. <laughs> <laughs> and Between you know, not only kept, but accessible. You know, the, the world becomes Googleized and Brewsterized, and, and all the email is, uh, is uh, forever searchable by anybody for free. Um, what happens to stories when we all can see the, the primary documents? I, I think it's a good thing. I mean, I was on this, this live, thanks to... Again, I think thanks to you and Peter on this Library of Congress co sort of mini commission originally looking at that problem. And I think it's great that we're going to... Saving everything is, is one solution. And then, the, then it becomes a search problem. How do you search it later? And the, the DNA people are teaching us how to do that from just an incredible number of fragments, just all the fragmented disk drives in the world. You can, you can reconstruct everything at some future time. And, and future... People like me will, will obviously work that way more than with, with paper. But it'll be, I think it'll be the same. In fact, there'll be guys like me who dig around in, in dead hard drives and put it back together. <laughs> Actually, it, it becomes not a search problem, but a filtering problem. And then yeah. it requires someone like you to make a narrative and a coherence. Right. It's knowing what to search for. Well, it's interesting that, that uh, documentary films have sort of taken off in the last two or three years. And part of it is because it's so easy to record things. A lot of people are, and they're putting them together into documentary stories, which are now fighting it out at the box office with, uh, you know, with special effects and fiction. And maybe that's a trend. Yeah, I think so. Freeman, what are you reading these days? Well, I'm reading They All Laughed at Christopher Columbus, which is a, a sort of more or less factual biography of, 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 of Gary Hudson, who is one of these space entrepreneurs that Esther is, 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 is supporting. He's a, a delightful fellow. He's now, I think he's gone bankrupt six times. And, and he's had, has, I think he's now on his seventh company. And he never loses hope. I think he's one of my heroes. He's, great, he's a great guy. And it's not a great book, but it's certainly worth reading. <laughs> Is there anything on your... What's, well, on the, what's in your briefcase when you get on the plane? My computer. <laughs> uh, like, like George, I read original source documents, but mine are, mine are current and prospective. So it's, it's business plans. It's, my basic assumption, if it's being written down, why should I write it again? So I talk to people about what their businesses are supposed to do and try and figure that out, figure out whether they're credible and most of what I read is, is actually email and, and attachments to email, which is very sad. <laughs> no, it's not sad. Actually, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun, but I, I, I wish I could live a parallel life and read novels. 
Uh, okay, Freeman, is a parallel life something that will be accessible pretty soon? It's possible. I, I mean, I, I think we, we, are, we, 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 we certainly will, I mean, as, as I see the future, now I'm going to start talking nonsense, but, but um, as I see the future, the next hundred years will belong to biotechnology in the sort of molecular sense of, 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 of getting a, a real mastery of how to write the, soft, the software of, of genomes so that we can produce any kind of creatures to perform any sort of functions that, that, that we find either beautiful or desirable or even, even useful. The hundred years after that, I would say, belong to neurology. And that's when all kinds of totally different kinds of problems arise, of course, when you start monkeying around with the human soul. And that's when you start talking about parallel lives. There's no reason I can see why you shouldn't have some kind of dissociated personalities to give you the chance of living six or seven lives, which otherwise you'd have to choose between. I would love to have seven alternatives for living my life. I'd have done all sorts of other things. I'd have taken a lot of risks, which on, with only one life, one doesn't feel inclined to take. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, to, to me, that's certainly a very big, uh, a big and positive something to look forward to. But again, it's going to require more space. We come back to this question of what we do. I would, I would say about Esther was saying that the, the, these societies in the remote parts of the solar system will start to be at each other's throats. I don't think that that's necessarily so. If, if, if you go far enough away, you can go far enough away, you can get away from c contact with people you don't like. <laughs> the, the, the problem with the parallel lives is you don't, you don't get any sat satisfaction from them unless you somehow reintegrate them at the end. Otherwise, you just have one person turning into seven. Well, they can and talk to each other, these parallel creatures. Yeah. Uh, well, okay, if I'm writing a science fiction novel, the novel I want to write is it's sort of the John Benet Ramsey novel. It's the story of a person and his relationship with his child clone. The, the, the relationship between a parent and a child is always fraught with some tension because the child, the parent lives through the child. Imagine what that's like if the child is actually the clone of the parent. I think it would make a great novel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to have a question in a minute uh, for Freeman to see if you have any questions for, for these guys. But in the meantime, I'll ask a question from the audience. Uh, this is from Kevin Kelly, it's right here. It says, in your years of looking ahead, what have you changed your mind about looking ahead? Esther, you've been spelling out the, you know, the, it's release 1.0. You're always pushing what's uh, just about to happen in your business. And there's been a lot of change in that business. You've surfed that wave probably better than anybody. 
Um, along the way, have there been some like serious mind changes of what's actually going on? And do you have any mind changes of that sort going on now? Um, the, the only big change, and this is the real one that I kind of signaled at the beginning, is, is moving from trying to understand what's going on to try to influence it much more actively, hmm. which in, in the end is, is far more satisfying, <laughs> even if you don't succeed. It's like, what's the point of holding a conference unless people go do something different afterwards than they would have done if you hadn't done it? And that's certainly what motivates people to write books and, and make scientific discoveries, somehow to change the world, not simply to predict it. Does this suggest that all predictions are either hopeful or fearful in some respect? Or, or no, or more normative. This is how it ought to be, and if you'd only see it my way, you'd do the right things to make it happen this way. That's kind of my, my subtext. So there's no such thing as an objective prediction? Not really, and I don't think there should be. Okay. There, there should, they should not be false or deceptive. But if you go in and you're negotiating with somebody and you tell them, this is what I want you to do, and here's my understanding of the situation and my motivations, and that's actually very persuasive, especially if it's also to their benefit. But you, you don't undercut your argument by making it transparent. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're manipulative and deceitful. But you can... The best arguments are honest and transparent and true, but they're, they're with an agenda. Freeman's glinting at that. No, no I, I, I was just thinking about my own experience. That, I mean, I, I, I certainly misjudged several historical events that, that I mean, I, when, when nuclear energy came on the scene after World War II, and it was in 1955. It was came out of the shadows and became public. All the essential information about nuclear reactors was declassified in 1955. So it was then free for everybody to move in and try to do something. So I went then to General Atomic in California and worked for the company to build nuclear reactors. And we all believed at that time this was the wave of the future, which of course it wasn't. And uh, so it, it's easy to be mistaken about things of that kind. I don't regret it because we had a lot of fun. We did some good work. And in the long run, we probably were right. That some, somehow or other, it's going to come back. It's going to be useful. But it's the, the, the hardest thing to foresee is how long it's going to take. We thought it would take t 10 or 20 years. Maybe it takes 100 or 200. But it's there, and it, it's something we will come back to. Then, so the same thing again happened with the space car, with the spaceship that George was talking about. We thought we had this wonderful nuclear spaceship. We, we would actually expect it ourselves to go out and explore Saturn. And it would have been wonderful if we'd seen that picture of Hyperion that we saw just this, this last week, actually with our own eyes out there and set foot on that beautiful sponge. Anyway, we missed that opportunity. And, but I don't regret that either. It's, it's the hardest thing is to foresee how long, a thing, how, how long things are going to take. And that's, of course, true in spades when we talk about human nature. It's obvious that human nature is going to change. Whether it takes 100 years or 10,000, nobody can say. 
George, you've got a historian's perspective on things. You, you, you're pretty careful about not dwelling on the future a lot yourself, as near as I can tell, but you've studied a lot of people who do. And what do you draw from that in terms of uh, how people's perspective on the future changes with uh, the coming of reality year after year? Well, it, it, I mean, think, some things happen sooner than you expect, and some things never happen. I mean, I, and I, my own experience, I was wrong on, you know, I, th I thought people would, you know, when I went to British Columbia and there were all these uninhabited islands, I thought in 10 or 20 years people would be living on all those islands. I mean, you know, I read your, that's what your whole, that's what the whole Earth Catalog said. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're still not there. The islands are emptier than ever. Yet the world is, 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 a, is over. And you've written about that recently, you know, the pull to the cities is really irresistible for, for, for most people. So that, that really caught me off guard. I thought we would move to a, a much more distributed population because the, the technology exists to do it. But, but the, I think that's exactly the point, that human nature doesn't. And so I lived in that treehouse all by myself and nobody ever showed up. <laughs> and and the, only, the only thing I would say about, about parallel lives, which was, I mean, Freeman's saying he would love to have six parallel lives. Well, he, Freeman had six children, and that's, that's really the way you, that's the, the non, you know, that's the way to do it. Well, it's even better when they come home as friends and colleagues. <laughs> Freeman, what questions do you have for, for these guys? You've watched them build careers and change ideas and develop uh, all sorts of skills and schemes and, and uh, relate to the family over years. Any questions you would ask them here? Oh, I don't know. I, I mean, that's, that's, uh, I know them too well. I mean, most of the questions, I guess, I, I, I have already been answered in one way or another. I mean, what I like about them is they're so different and different from me and different from each other. Then ask them a question you know the answer to that you think will titillate this audience. <laughs> <laughs> No, I suppose the thing which I find the great mystery is when or how George changed from being a rebellious teenager to being a colleague. Oh. That's to me always been a mystery. How did it happen? <laughs> well, there's an easy answer to that, which was that, that Kenneth Brower wrote the book... Uh -huh casting me in stone as a rebellious teenager. So if you, if you are rebellious and you're cast as rebellious, what do you do? <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah. When, when did Esther become a colleague? What was the point of change uh, when she stopped being the, the daughter and became a colleague? Well, I suppose when she started organizing conferences and inviting me. And <laughs> I think this is it. There's some kind of, there's a reflexivity. The, uh, in my case, my mother took me seriously when I was on a television show, the Dick Cavett show that she watched and that all her friends watched. 
and then I was in some sense a colleague. There's yes. this uh, you know, third party validation that occurs. Uh, got any more questions, Kevin? I think we're wrapping up. Uh, do you guys want to bring up anything else as we head toward conclusion here? I didn't want to not say it. I've never been wrong. And one thing I was, I would say, I've been wrong about and learned a lot about from Stuart was, I foolishly thought anonymity was a wonderful thing, mm. and I no longer think it's a wonderful thing in, in a free society. I think there are reasons for it. It's kind of like abortion. It may be the best response to a problem, but by and large, it's something to be avoided if you can, and. That is fundamentally because everything works best when it's transparent, including people. So goodbye privacy? Pardon? Goodbye privacy? No. There's a big difference between being anonymous and having everything exposed very seriously. But as, as you operate in the world, people behave better if they operate, if they're accountable for what they do. Mm -hmm. And I, I, don't, I don't want to go into this in great length. I just wanted to say that I was wrong about something. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's play out this thread just a little bit okay. because I think it's of the essence, and this may get into human nature and families and everything else. I mean, one of the things that was the case in villages is everybody knows everything about everybody. And that's one of the reasons people leave villages to go to the city where you can get a certain amount of anonymity. And start over. Start over, pretend to be a different person, and come to be that person, all that sort of That's the urban experience. And yet with uh, the internet and uh, crawlers and everything else, more and more transparency is simply the case. There are cameras everywhere. There's probably cameras in here. And so if transparency is increasingly of the essence and we can't undo it, uh, how do we finesse it so that it doesn't feel like an invasion of privacy or, or feel like everybody's got to toe some particular line of believing in this, that, or the other thing or behaving in this, that, or the other way? I mean, there, if, when there's no longer any closet to be closeted in with your sexual behavior or whatever, what's that world like? Well, I think one interesting thing that actually has to do with time is that we may have a faster decay rate for behavior in some sense. We'll, we'll become more willing to forgive past transgressions, to, to assume that people change over time. Even though you have all their emails from when they're 15, you understand that they might have changed and are no longer rebellious, whatever. We, we may become more tolerant simply because everybody's flaws become more visible. The, which is better, hypocrisy That's my hope, or, yeah. yeah. I got one more for you, Freeman. Uh, you're 81 and sharp as a tack. I'm 66, various people here in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and are, are looking warmly on you is the way they would like to be when they're 81 or 91 or 101 or 121. And the, the question I've got is, as we both live longer and flourish longer, how does that play out? 
Oh, I think it could be a disaster. If, I mean, the worst thing that could happen is if these doctors find a cure for death. And this is something that is actually quite likely. And I don't know how we'll deal with that. I mean, the, 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 if, 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 if the old people just hang around and there'll be no more room for young people until, first of all, it'll bring an end to science and it'll bring an end to all kinds of good things. I, I, I look, that, that to me is one of the real black clouds on the horizon. I hope it's not going to happen, but I don't see, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see much chance of avoiding it. So you see life extension as basically a, a damper uh, in the coming decades? It could be. It is very difficult it, uh, to see how we're going to avoid it. It is, it is so tempting to say, oh, let's live a little bit longer and then a little bit longer. Then this year it's 150 and then we say, well, then why not 200 and so on and so on. Yes. <laughs> like copyright, okay. Uh, what's the workaround on that? There again, I mean, it, 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 it again, it, it, it's one of these problems for which probably the only cure is to go away to somewhere else where young people still have a chance. Mm -hmm. Light out for the territory. Yeah, or, or send the old guys to Mars. And <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.